0: Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what
1: inspires them to make with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com.
0: And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast or the Patreon link on our website. In this episode of Bonus Make, we continue our conversation with Ellie Richards, a furniture designer, sculptor, and teacher, who is currently a resident
1: artist at the Pinland School of Crafts. We talk with Ellie about her project, The High Boy's Understory, Deconstructing the Icon, in which she examines the Winterthur Museum's collection of high chests and other related forms.
0: Ellie plans to incorporate this research in a new body of work that responds to and reflects on the many stories about race, class, and society as embedded in these furniture forms.
1: Join us as Ellie begins to crack open and unpack the origin stories of the grand and flamboyant 17th century high boy. We're here with
0: Ellie Richards on Bonus Make. And this is Rob and Eric and Ellie. Hi. So um, we're going to talk about a project that is kind of in process. And am I saying it right? Deconstructing the icon, the high boy's understory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Take it from here, Ellie.
2: Okay. Um, Thanks for having me. The high boy, I'm going to have to describe what a high boy is. So a high boy is a chest of drawers. Um, it's a very fine piece of furniture. It has sort of the S-curve cabriolet legs often as a base, and on the top there's sort of a crown, a sort of curved, arced, symmetrical crown. And the highboy is typically found in the bedroom and stores anything from sheets to bedding you know, nighttime clothes or whatever. It's typically like 17th, came of age in the 17th century. I find it a very fanciful furniture form. It's very flamboyant. It was, it was made for, for men to inhabit, you know, the, the, the drawers and stuff with their own belongings. And it was typically made by men as well. So it, in, in its sort of floral, feminine nature, I find it pretty captivating with those sort of two things in in tension with one another. And there's a really incredible article um written by uh Jonathan Prown, who is a curator at Chipstone, which uh sort of houses an incredible collection of of furniture and decorative arts from the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. He's wrote a really illuminating article on on the hi- this like chest of drawers. And I, I encourage you reading it. So yeah, I guess my interest just comes comes at it from the aesthetics of it and its sort of grandeur. And I was reading uh Tanahisi Coates book Between the or uh, The Water Dancer. Mm-hmm. And in it he tells a story of an enslaved furniture maker who is working on the restoration of a high boy. And as I was, as I was reading this, it sort of got me thinking um, about the history of furniture design and wood art, and it led me to wonder, kind of, who do I owe um, my interpretations and appreciation of, of these sort of subtleties of period-style design and construction. You know, the fact is, is that African Americans played a really vital role in the production of a lot of furniture, Southern furniture. And I, th- and their contributions remain underappreciated and unrecognized. And so, yeah, this omission reflects the anonymity of the men who made them. And I think that that point digs into me because here I've been studying furniture and looking at the subtleties of design and the curvature of, of these items and at whose hands did these details come from. And I'm interested in using the high boy as a sort of conduit to understand uh, the story of enslaved makers and how their contributions can be More and their influences can be more openly credited and engaged with. And as a sort of study in this, I made a small model of a high boy and um, intend to combine my efforts in making and researching to understand this more fully. There's an interesting um, network called the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive in which African American makers are being entered into this this larger system of searchable system, yeah. um, so that credit can be given where credits due. Some of the questions that I'm going to be asking, I'm I'm working with Winter Tour, the Winter Tour Museum, which is uh, again another sort of decorative arts museum that houses an incredible collections of of 17th and 18th century furniture. And they have a, like just a large collection of these high boys that I'm going to go and poke around and look underneath, see how they're made and kind of ask myself a few questions. You know, I want to ask myself, how can, um, contemporary craft invite further inquiry and rhetoric Um, from and with sort of BIPOC craftspeople Mm -hmm. and I want to
0: I'm going to interject real quick BIPOC is black indigenous and people of color correct for folks that don't know that acronym
2: right and I want to know you know as a sculptor and an object maker how can I be more effective in blending the backdrop of traditional woodworking practices Alongside, um, all of these sort of historical references that are tied to period style furniture. So, you know, how can I tell better, more accurate stories using the history of furniture design in, in its entirety with the sort of sculptures that I'm making? As a, that's just a personal sort of agenda of mine.
1: So do, so do you hope to, so you're going to build a whole series of these pieces?
2: I think through the research that, that, that will happen. Um, as someone who feels more at home in the studio than in a library per se, I think that those two things have to go hand in hand for, in order for me to be an effective assimilator of of these two, of, of this information. So I wanna use the studio as, yeah, my sort of keyboard in a way. Like I wanna be able to to communicate through objects while I'm doing the research
1: yeah'cause i thought I thought you made some interesting choices in terms of um i mean assuming it's a little maquette that's on your mm-hmm. website in terms of i mean really totally just deconstructing the high boy and turning it into a a pretty minimalistic ob, a minimalistic object with a you know basically a ban on box technique mm-hmm. and then you chart it, and those are all really interesting statements to make on a piece that is usually incredibly ornate and incredibly complicated in terms of its construction and technique.
2: I think that that, in essence, is is stripping this ornate form of all of its fine details that you sort of get hyper-focused on when you're looking at a piece of furniture like this. I I was wanting to strip those away to its essential form and um, create something quite raw. And something rudimentary in its construction. And sort of, I'm sort of interested in doing that with my mind as well. Like stripping myself of all of the um, inaccuracies and misinformation that I have been fed in my upbringing about the history of black people in the United States. And yeah, that's where I'm at. So
0: it's really interesting. I mean, that... You know, I mean, all three of us are white. It's mm-hmm. and coming to it from that perspective is is different and bold. Um, I want to read you a quote real quick from this is from an interview with ta Coates about the time the water dancer came out. He says, we're in a time right now when people love to talk about diversity, man, fuck that. If you're trying to do a thing and you understand that things are not within your direct experience, you should have people inter- interacting with your work. Who have that as a direct experience? It ain't no different than going out and reporting on a story. If you want some expertise on something, you find somebody who has that direct experience that you trust. That's from a uh, Atlantic Monthly in uh, mm-hmm. middle of last year. Um, I just thought that was really interesting and kind of spoke to the fact that you know sometimes you step into stuff that you don't know about, or yeah. and and it's like you can do it you know when I initially saw that this this was a project that you were taking on I was like huh and then I started looking further and I was like go find out this is amazing you know dig 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 and Ta yeah, um, what he said kind of t- helped me tie
1: it together right. in my head and and as an editorial comment for three white people I have no idea how to properly pronounce Tanahasi Coates's name I've heard it 10 million different ways, and I'm embarrassed every time I say it because <laughs> I don't know the real pronunciation. I've so. heard it
0: a lot of times, and I believe that it is Ta-Nehisi Coates.
1: Right. So my apologies to Ta-Nehisi Coates for, if we have butchered your name, it's so, but, the uh, ignorance t- of three white people.
0: Talk about talk about that and kind of the that aspect in, in starting this research and how you feel about that.
2: Well, I think you, you've brought up a really good point. It's like you start, sometimes you stumble into things you don't, you don't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes in order to move forward in that you reach for folks that can support you in that journey. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Like I'm looking for communities and groups that I can move along on within my anti-racist path my yeah. path to becoming more anti-racist mm-hmm. um, i'm looking for people to to hold hands with through this that no, that sounds
0: No that's that's a really yeah. that's a really good way to put it somebody to walk the tightrope with
2: Sure yeah yeah it 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 means tapping into your to your resources to the collective resources it means tapping into your own sort of personal memory and your personal pain and mm-hmm. your personal trauma and the thing that I'm learning is that a lot of times that lives in inside you, in your body. And um, there's an author named Resma Menachem who wrote a book called "My Grandmother's Hands. and it talks about those personal traumas that live in in your, in your, in your body. And that is important to note because what we're talking about here is making things and we use our hands and we use our bodies to make things. And without an awareness of, of of our personal pains and without being able to communicate with those within ourselves, I mean, I think that that's, that's, that puts us at a serious disadvantage. So the process of, um, of getting to know how your body reacts to trauma um, mm-hmm. has a sort of direct relationship to how you approach working material and what your aesthetic outcomes are um, wh- and what those are. And with the high boy project, I think that there could be some, some sort of uh, juicy stuff there for me to, unleash and deal with both mm-hmm. yeah intellectually and then on and with wood as a material
1: right and and the great thing about that Ta-Nehisi Coates quote mm-hmm. um is is also the notion that I um, I'm fascinated which was which is appropriation I mean mm-hmm. and I don't know how to define it and I don't want to define it for other artists but I'd like your thoughts on appropriation
2: yeah, I think that appropriation, <laughs> when someone tells you that you're, you're appropriating something, it, it's not a compliment. <laughs> like that, my first, uh, impression is that, oh, I've done something terrible. Um, I'm doing something inappropriate by appropriating. Yeah. And I, I wanna, for myself, unpack that a little bit because I think that there's room for good in, in appropriation. I, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about that. I think that when you appropriate something, you are taking something that already exists and somehow claiming it as your own. And I think that the word claiming situates yourself in which you are um, putting your own sort of power and control on someone else's belongings and taking them for yourself. And so... It's language. It, it's coming, it's gonna come down to language with appropriation and how you use it. If, if appropriation is about collecting data, if it's about collecting history and reinterpreting that, um, that starts to change the tone of what's, what's happening in your work. I think that artists and craftspeople come up, come up against it all the time. I mean, the the sort of thing that I always hear ringing in my ears is that, like, none of us have done anything for the first time. And I think one of the things that I've learned by listening to y'all's podcast is that so much is connected um, by whether it's where we grew up, where we went to school, who we were taught by, everything is interconnected. And so those influences have a way of uh, dripping through one another subconsciously or, or not. Now, when they come, when influences arrive in your work, it is the responsibility of the maker to call those out and to understand where they came from. Again, back to origin stories, it's the responsibility to match your privilege of getting to to do this work, of getting to make things, of getting to express yourself, that privilege comes with a responsibility to know um, where these things are coming from. So you can give credit where credit is due. Appropriation is like something that we can all learn so much from. Some of my um, sculptures have come out looking quite almost tribalistic or primitive or I think that they look like they've reminded me of totems and totem sculptures, but, you know, in my own genetic lineage, like, do I have a connection to, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the native tribe that sort of began carving totems. Like, no, am I incredibly interested in this cultural practice and what it has meant to those people? And how it's coming through me. Like, I'm, I'm interested in how this is all happening. And I'm not interested in, in, like, putting up a lot of barriers. Like, I want there to be permeability there. And I think when you, like, lay down the fencework of, like, on this side, you're not appropriating, and on that side, you are, I think that that's problematic. I think this is a, a big conversation, and, um, I, and making work in order to have these conversations and to deepen my understanding of where and how I came from and where and how my work is sitting in the world in relation to everything else that's going on.
1: great. Well, uh, again, thanks for joining us on Bonus Make, Ellie. Thank you. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or a direct download from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help
0: us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.